You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 118 is Matt Wilson, who's the frontman of the band Trip Shakespeare. He started in the early 80s. They released four albums and an EP starting in 1986. You're right now listening to Toolmaster of Brainerd from their second LP, 1989's Are You Shakespeareanced? After that, they were on a major label for a couple of albums, at which point he was writing a lot of songs in tandem with his brother Dan Wilson, which he refers to here. You will know Dan Wilson, along with John Munson, the Trip Shakespeare bass player, as members of Semisonic with their song Closing Time. And since then, Dan has co-written with Adele and a million other people. You can just look him up. Meanwhile, Matt, for most of the 90s, was playing drums and producing other bands, released his first solo album in 1998, got back together with bass player John Munson for a band that was first called The Flops and then The Twilight Hours, so there's three more albums between those projects. Today we are celebrating his new album, 2020's Matt Wilson and His Orchestra. The album name is When I Was a Writer. We'll be talking about the song Decent Guy, and we'll be looking back to The Twilight Hours' Dreams from the album Stereo Night, 2009, then to Sun Is Coming from his first solo album, Burnt White and Blue, 1998, and conclude by listening to the title track from When I Was a Writer, that new album. To learn more, please see his website, MinneapolisMatt.com. To learn more about this podcast, please look to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, please support the podcast at Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic, which will get you our ad-free feed. Let's go. I will play a little bit of Toolmaster of Brainerd while giving a quick rundown of your past career. I actually just listened to the two major label albums this morning in a row getting into this so that I could figure out once and for all, wait, whose voice is who? I can tell like with about 95% certainty, but it seemed like that was one you were writing all the lyrics, but yet you kind of farmed out so that Dan got to sing some and John got to sing some. Yeah. And Dan was a totally a co-writer on probably most of them. So we're going to make the jump to right now. So give us the latest where you're coming from with this most recent album, When I Was a Writer and Decent Guy that we're about to hear. As I was working with Trip Shakespeare and then the Twilight Hours after that, I kind of was always in a rock setting using electric guitars and distortion, which I've always loved. And it's such an exciting, powerful tool. But meanwhile, in reality, my voice is quiet and it can be you know foggy and soft. And I was kind of longing for a band that could kind of allow that to come through in its gentle, foggy way without being kind of blown away by um, mid-range power of electric guitars and stuff like that. Because I wanted to uh, create a group that could really showcase the songs, the sound of the songs, where the lyrics could be heard really readily. Uh, gravitated towards instruments like a Rickenbacker guitar or acoustic guitar, these instruments that have a twingle on top and then a little bit of thunder below, but there's a mid-range gap that allows my voice, my foggy voice, to just kind of float through in the middle. And I uh, found myself with John Munson in northern Minnesota at a kind of a wilderness retreat with a whole bunch of musicians. And one of them was this harp player named Thela Tracy. She's someone that I had made a little bit of music with in the past, and I was just reminded just how imaginative she is and what an inventor she is and what a kind of an arrangement person she was, how good she was at just arranging songs. At the same time, there was another band that was at this kind of wilderness up in the north uh, retreat with us who 
was a banjo player, and his band was the Rowe Family Singers. They sang very beautifully, but his groove on banjo was really remarkable. He was kind of like a drum set. Just kind of it occurred to me, wow, those two sounds would be really cool together, and these two humans are really could function well together with the idea being Quillen being this natural pulsing rhythmic guy on banjo and then this harp could kind of swoop above and below that and then my voice could just come through that gap that's left when there's only acoustic instruments. Another guy I know is Jacques Waite and he was was and is the lead guitar player in The Twilight Hours but he loves to play bass. He loves that role. And so brought these three together and we had a rehearsal and I listened to the recordings of the rehearsal just that I made on my iPhone. It sounded really sunshiny and kind of inherently positive. It seemed to be the antidote for my music, which is can have a little bit of a kind of existential angst edge to it sometimes. And so it worked really well. And then the other thing I learned as we uh, kind of got together and worked out some harmonies just at the end of rehearsal is that it was kind of an unusual sound that we had. And I wasn't sure if it was good or not, but whatever it was, it was something, you know, it was, it felt like, wow, okay, that's something. And as I got used to it, I really came to love it because it's super clear. At the risk of going on too long, I'll just say that one funny thing about our group is that uh, Quillen, you know, looks a little bit like a trucker. He's a banjo player with a big beard. And he looks like uh, he could be like our enforcer. And then Fela is literally hovers right around 100 pounds. She's a small person, powerful personality. But the funny thing is that she sings the low parts in almost all of our harmonies. And Quillen does the kind of soaring high parts. And I'm, I'm in the middle there with my cloudy voice. I'm in the city for another try. This time I really want to be a decent guy. Where people say I'm on the up and up. But there's a hidden limitation that could mess me up. Some people look into my eyes and know. Some people barely see me and they turn to go. My dreams and my schemes are gonna fall apart. I'm not joking that I'm broken up inside my heart. Even though I try, and I believe I'm a decent guy. Everyone around is bound to cry. I think you better walk, because as soon as I begin to talk, I make a smoke machine, a castle in the sky All the freaky machinations of a decent guy Walk away I think about the villain in a movie role He makes a cool calculation and he sells his soul Fools everybody and it almost works Until he falls into the hands of some intruding jerks We see his eyes, he's about to die We can tell that he might have been a decent guy But then he slips away to the back of a vehicle And we know there's probably gonna be another sequel Even though I try And I believe I'm a decent guy Everyone around is bound to cry I think you better go 
Because as soon as I began to flow I make a smoke machine, a castle in the sky All the freaky machinations of a decent guy Walk away Based on the lyrics, this could be sort of a bummer of a song, but it's just so bouncy and and shiny and nice. Did this go through a demo period? You have a version somewhere that's just you on guitar singing this? Yeah, I definitely demoed this song a lot, just kind of using a fake drum machine and different attempts at arrangements. Probably for a full year and a half, I was trying different things before I met and began working with the people in my orchestra. It went through a lot of different iterations, and I wasn't sure, you know, I, there was something that sounded vaguely like early ministry a little bit, some kind of disco sounding sort of thing. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I tried to make it funky. It just ended up kind of really taking off when I just let the banjo lead the way, and Jacques added that downbeat bass line with some kind of ornament downbeat, and that was kind of the root of it. Did this become vocally more funky as it went on, or was that there kind of from the start yeah that was always there that was always the plan have a really rhythmic kind of a confession from me that had a lot of fun rhymes in it and took you on a journey in each verse as far as the actual even vocal tone i mean overall you've kind of gotten more breathy as time has gone on but that's the way actually i was still picking out in the trip shakespeare stuff is it you is it dan like if it's got a little bit of grit on it it's probably you Yep, and if it's kind of crystalline and extra beautiful, that's Dan. (laughs) Well, but then when you both go up to the falsetto, then I don't know anymore, because we've even got in this song a little bit of falsetto. So we're going to play a song at the end that's from the same album. So obviously you can still do a soaring, beautiful, nice, little lilting falsetto, but I don't know, is this the natural way that you sing now, or was this kind of an extra 
character bit for this particular song? I do both. My natural thing is to go all the way from uh, rhythmic and my voice, which, you know, if I raise it at all, it starts to break up because that's just kind of how it's built. And then I can sing high and I use that too. And it allows me to do things that are kind of beautiful up there. And so those are the kind of the two sides to what I do. And it's just kind of baked in. I mean, looking back to like Toolmaster, and that sort of seemed to be what made even John sound like a member of the family that even though you have very different vocal ranges and stuff, you're all doing this very belty thing on a lot of the songs, not all the songs, but a different, obviously you're, you know, this is an acoustic band. This is a different, and you had seemingly made that transition quite a long time ago, even by your 1998 solo album. We don't, I don't hear any more of that sort of operatic (laughs) pushing hard vocal style from any of you. I think that in a way, Dan and I picked up on, the most powerful singer in the group, which was John, and he just was capable of that. And Dan and I could kind of add our voices to that. And then we had that sound and it was a sound. And it's like, it's a funny thing with being in a band. It's like when you discover something that's a sound, you know, where it's like, okay, that's something. And then you just find yourself kind of chasing that because it's hard to find something that's something, you know, like something that's unique and interesting and a little bit powerful. And so we had that with when we sang with our, you know, big voice. And so I think we just chased that because it was something. So by contrast, this not built over a number of years singing together, building up something, but just having the bunch of your voices very different, just meld. Yeah. So it's got more of a wings than Beatles if we need a, if we need a comparison. Am I right in thinking like that this very beginning, this away, away, away thing with the Intricate, that that was kind of a, you had already maybe worked that out for later in the song and then felt like, oh, that could work as an intro too, or was that? Yeah. In fact, it wasn't even recorded onto the beginning of the song. Ah. We added that chunk of music there and placed those vocals, you know, so some copying and pasting going on and modern production techniques. That sort of George Harrison-y slide guitar part, again, was that kind of part of the original idea of the, well, actually, is it even a slide? I guess it's a slide and it's just me really faking it. And I'm not a licensed slide <laughs> player, but if I play enough cakes, you know, I can be. And so that's what that is. I don't even get it out for live. It would just be a crying shame. So that's strictly appears on the album. So something that sounds like it's the kicking off melody was just an afterthought overdub. It's true. You know, you invent the heart of the song and then you're like, oh my God. What's the part that's going to kind of herald the whole thing? That's going to like tell everybody, all right, you know, it's time to listen right over here, you know, downbeat. And that's kind of what that was. Did that on a couple of different songs on the record. I mean, a lot of your solo stuff, but this in particular is built of some kind of distinct parts that could just be really catchy by themselves. This one that comes in about a minute and five in, let me just play this, this high thing. I'm not sure if this is a harp or guitar. Think about the villain in a movie role He makes a cool calculation and he sells his soul Fools everybody and it almost works Until he falls into the hands of some intruding jerk It sounds like what a nice, tasteful, reverb-soaked lead guitar player does Me and my daughter Georgia went out to my brother's place And stayed for a couple days, maybe a year and a half ago And then at one point Dan said, Matt, just come in here, will you? And just said, play a drum beat, you know? And so I went in and he just wanted to like 
capture some stuff that he could maybe, you know, make loops out of or, or just build around, you know? And so he just goes, all right, now play some fills that could go with that. And so I played a couple drum fills and stuff like that. And then he goes, play some guitar. And so I was trying some different stuff over this thing. You know, he turned that into a loop and he's super fast and creative and able. Pretty soon we were recording some acoustic guitar and he just held his iPhone up and recorded it like that. That was very surprising to me because, you know, we're in a really nice studio that he has. Then he just kind of like somehow he sent is the file that he made just in the iPhone voice memo app to the computer and did a little doctoring. Pretty soon that was all lined up with what we had with the drums. So that was just a fun day and we were screwing around. But I always remembered that trick. And so after this song, Decent Guy was kind of pretty much most of the way there, but it needed this something else. Moving the harp around, recording a harp, that's a big deal, you know. And so for most of the record, Fela and I would get the harp down into my basement, and it's hard going downstairs and stuff, and then, you know, miking it up. So I was just like, stay where you are, I'll come over after work. And I brought my iPhone, and so I recorded that part on an iPhone, and then a bunch of different kind of versions of it. And then we just kind of flew that in to different parts of the song. Okay, so that contributes to the, it's still soaked with reverb, so it's not like the iPhone is giving it its distinct character, but I would think that it's not getting a lot of the high-low frequencies, like it's not an awesome mic. <laughs> it's kind of like got what you want, you know, it's, uh-huh. just, it's, it's all dialed in so that it gives you that, it's all right there. It's just funny. It's like, maybe it is an awesome mic in its way, you know, but it's not like, doesn't have that tight low end or anything like that. But for that thing, it just kind of, it's something. It sounds like something. So what about these away, away, aways? Are you also doing, did you all sing those together? Yeah, all three of us. And it sounds like, likewise, I'm hearing a lot of mid on that. Like, did you kind of strip that down so it kind of sounds like it's coming from a slightly different sonic universe? (laughs) They were recorded really straight up, just a little bit of compression, you know, kind of classic. Our mixer was this guy named John Fields in Minneapolis, and he's amazing champion of sound. He's fantastic. He's had a lot of hit records. He built those sounds. But before I sent it over to him, there is a, like a distorted echo that I just kind of sent as like maybe something like this. And you can hear it at the beginning where it's kind of building this echo. Um, chaos is happening. John's the kind of guy, he's like, he just likes to keep moving. If someone does something and it sounds good, he just he doesn't redo it. He just uses it and moves ahead. And that brings out the best in people because then they know that like if they take a shot at something, he just might use it. And so, you know, everyone's doing their best stuff right from the beginning because if he likes it, he's going to use it. Well, speaking of the mixing, so I, I feel like one of the most effective parts of the song is that little part, that harp part that we've been talking about comes in, but then halfway through that verse, it drops out. We all see his eyes, he's about to die, and the banjo is gone, and it just really exposes. Was that just a mixing decision to free that up, or was that choreographed? The first. And so one thing that I've kind of picked up, and I know that it's something I don't mean to name check my brother again, but I know he does this a lot, and I think it's kind of a classic mixed thing to do. So we've got really um, traditional instruments in the group, but kind of also no rules in terms of the recordings or you know, we're not trying to stay true to any sort of like old time folk principles or anything. It's just instruments, recording studio is an instrument, etc. And then one of the most powerful things you can do is once you've got everything recorded, is just using the mute button 
and making things go away at key time. It's amazing how powerful it is to subtract. That's kind of the last step. When I'm getting some musical files ready to hand over to the mixer, last step is just taking things away and figuring out places to just gut as much as you can and keep things simple. So was that used a lot on the bass or that was just the part that Jacques wrote that it has some really nice spaces in it? Some of that is the mute button. Okay. You know, and uh, some of it is him. He kept it sparse. I love what he did, but there's a couple of places where I just kind of like killed it for a little while because it sounds good. It's a funny thing with bass players. It's, it's unique to bass players. They're very tuned in to the bass. You know, they hear the low end. It's, they're always kind of checking. They're listening to it. They're just really focused on that. So when it goes away, it's like a personal crisis a little bit. They're like, oh, the song is broken. Something's happening here. It's difficult for them to deal with the muting of the bass, but they get over it. Because that goes hand in hand with the drums here coming in and out. And they're so simple for the most part that it's really, you know, very much an overdubbed afterthought. Put a little shaker here, put some boom, crack, boom, crack, just some boom, boom, boom here and there with a little shaker. Yeah, so it seems like that's just a piece of the scenery that's coming in and out rather than a what a scaffolding that it would normally act as. That's exactly right. We just uh, kind of use as much percussion as is necessary to define the beat or to elevate the situation where it feels like things need to turn into more of a party. We're trying to keep the drums as kind of not a necessary element, but just something more like percussion, something you don't really even hear. Well, and I recall, I think it was Kim Deal, the Pixies bass player, saying, I never do fills because that's kind of like helping the drummer. The drummer can do it. The drummer can do the fill. The drummer can... But this is reversing those roles that while she was doing the just straight eighth note pretty much throughout just to give you that low thing, well, that's what the drums are doing here. <laughs> helping the drummer. That's funny. That's cold. <laughs> Well, that, yeah, yeah. She thought the drummer doesn't need it. I can just play entirely straight. I don't, you know, it's as a bass player, I appreciate the bass taking the actively funky role and uh, leaving the drums to play against that. So I guess the last step in terms of the mixing, you're adding these little things to fill hold. Am I, and I thought I heard a little bit of harmonica somewhere sputtering toward the end. Am I making yeah. that? Okay. I'm, I'm a, like a baby harmonica player, just a embryonic harmonica guy. I always want to call it harp, but in a band with an actual harp, you can't call it harp. So I have to say the full harmonica. But yeah, I'm learning to play harmonica. And that was my first harmonica recording and just kind of popping in at the end there. Super fun. It's a cool instrument. The punch in thing that I regularly will just kind of look around the house for like, what can I put in this little section? Do a little squeak, do a little. So the harmonica is great for that, for those of us that are not real harmonica players. And so I'm surprised given the banjo's role that the banjo doesn't dominate more that it kind of plays nicely in this but i guess that's what, just what you were saying about his style that banjo is known for you know <laughs> they can fill the space there's two different ways you can play it there's kind of this i only kind of know what i need to know but he, there's kind of like a claw hammer kind of thing which is loud and it just fills everything you know and that's like um in deliverance when the, the you know everyone yes that business that's that but the stuff he does with us is fingers. Well, it's a whole different beast and it's mellower. It feels less like a machine and more like kind of grassy and gentle pastoral. And he just did that. His usual thing is the other one. That's what he uses in his other band. This is kind of his chance to do this other kind of finger style. I'm not sure what it is. 
I'm just going to stop us for a minute. We've got two sponsors today. First, I want to tell you about BetterHelp, which is online counseling, which given our current circumstances as a society is probably something a lot of people could use. BetterHelp can connect you to one of 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states. You just fill out a questionnaire at their website to help them assess your needs, get matched with a counselor you love. They've got specialists in depression, stress, anxiety, sleeping, trauma, grief, and some specializations that might not, through traditional means, be available in your local area. BetterHelp is available to folks worldwide and makes use of text, chat, phone, and video, kind of whatever you're most comfortable with. BetterHelp lets you get help on your own time at, at your own pace. Very convenient, completely confidential, totally above board, professional, and it is affordable with financial aid available to those who qualify. So whether you're just clawing at the walls right now, stressed about what's going on, or there are longer term issues that it really would be good to get around to dealing with, BetterHelp is there for you. So if you've been thinking that really you could probably use some therapy, this is really the perfect time to explore that option. Nakedly Examined Music listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code NEM. If you're not happy with the counselor they hook you up with for any reason, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Go to betterhelp.com slash NEM. One more time, that's betterhelp.com slash NEM. Also, I'm very glad to have the continued support of Masterclass for Nickly Exam Music. This is, of course, exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. So many people that you've heard of from Jane Goodall to Judd Apatow to Steve Martin, Gordon Ramsay, Paul Krugman, Malcolm Gladwell, Judy Bloom. The list goes on and on. And I've told you in many of my other episodes about their dozen or so music classes with greats like Herbie Hancock, Carlos Santana, Danny Elfman, Reba McIntyre, Itzhak Perlman. So a lot of coverage across many genres. But today in our quarantined times, I want to stress this annual all-access pass that gives you unlimited access to the courses from over 75 instructors how useful this is for your family. I've got kids that are home, they're doing distance learning, but it takes certainly less time than they were taking when they were actually in school. So I felt like this is a great time to get them interested in independent learning so they could continue that pursuit throughout their lives. And I'm looking here that my daughter has gone through most of the course for Creativity and Leadership by Anna Wintour, that she's watched several lessons by Helen Mirren teaching acting, that someone in my house has... Watched several of the lessons by David Baldacci about mystery and thriller writing. And I'm very excited that Masterclass has really beefed up its offerings in cooking with about a dozen classes in that. So I'm very in favor of people in my house exploring that, that I get to reap the benefits from. Really, there is something for everybody in your house. So I highly recommend you check out the annual all-access pass. You get 15% off that. Again, that gets you unlimited access to every Masterclass. If you go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examine for 15% off masterclass. Thanks for your patience. Let's get back to the show. Well, we haven't really talked lyrics yet, but let's get the second song out there and we can kind of talk about the very downer lyrics that both these songs have. So this is Dreams by Twilight Hours from Stereo Night 2009. Do you want to say a little before we hear it about where you're at at this point with this album and this song in particular, the opening track of that album? So I wrote this song and I thought it was really special right away but kind of what i wrote it about and what it seems to be about are two different things
Pretty song. This intro acoustic riff. Actually, both the last two songs we're going to discuss here are centered around this kind of thing. Do you have any? Is it just you mess around a little on your guitar every day? <laughs> is there any sort of method to the madness of coming up with? Oh yeah, okay, that sounds like a completed the thing that I can build the song around now. I never tried a version of a song that didn't kind of have that riff that you hear on there. It's kind of a ringing acoustic guitar using the higher strings kind of thing. You know, I probably never would have thought of that if I hadn't worshipped U2 when I was young, you know, because of Edge and the kind of ringing stuff that he did. And that kind of followed that toward the birds, you know, and the kind of uh, ringing riffs like in Tambourine Man or Turn, Turn, Turn. That's a kind of a root part of the song. It went through a bunch of different versions as the Twilight Hours kind of worked on arranging it. And the final version has a lot of John Munson, who was in Trip Shakespeare, and then he was in Semisonic. And luckily for me, he was still willing to be in a band with me for about a decade with the Twilight Hours, and we continue. The version that we ended up with has him kind of pedaling on one note a lot through some chord changes and that turns out to be really powerful sometimes when it works. Is he playing a five string there? It seemed like it was a, a note that's a little lower. It could have just been the low E, but maybe it was The song's in D. Okay, there you go. So I think he he drops the E down to D and that's why you're hearing that. Yeah, so that's another one, you know, like the last song with the Jacques part where it's the space so much of it, in fact, this is obviously a lot simpler and he's not trying to funk it up, but 
Am I just going to play one note per measure? Or am I going to play two notes per measure? Like that, that's enough to really kick it into a different gear. Yeah, he was restrained. He was admirably restrained on that song. I commend him. But then he uh, got to do some fun overdubs. There's a um, baritone electric guitar. You can think about that song, Lineman for the County. Some Glenn Campbell songs have that baritone tic-tac guitar. Let me see if we were talking about the same spot. This uh, sounds like there's a lead fretless bass part about a minute and a half in. Where it just becomes the melody over your reprising the original riff. That's straight up bass, just going up high and getting turned up. The part I'm talking about is... Every chorus where it goes, these dreams are killing me. That thing, it sounds like a country song, kind of, or like it's a tone from country music with the, the tremolo on it. That's John doing that. We might as well talk about drums while we're at it. So yeah, we've got the foundational drums, actually 16th note hi-hat, which can be something that I'm surprised it sounds this relaxed. <laughs> that it must be just a very relaxed, you know, the fact that you can put that in there and it just sounds like a shaker as opposed to, I guess it's the way you engineer the hi-hats as well. So it doesn't sound like, you know. <laughs> right. So it's brushes. That's part of it. And so then you get an automatic mellowness, which is makes it sound good with the upright bass. It's an upright bass and... It just kind of blends well with the acoustic guitar as well. It allows that to be kind of a primary instrument because everyone's gentle. It's a really, really cool drum part. It's got a lot going on. It got straightened out a lot. I just kind of handed it over to a friend of ours, Brad Kern, who was the uh, live sound engineer for Semisonic for years and also for Trip Shakespeare before that. And he just kind of took it in, you know, moved things around until it was as smooth as you have it there, and that's uh, probably why it sounds so smooth. So he took out a lot of the fills? <laughs> no, I don't think he did that. I think, it's, okay. I think the ideas are there, but it's more perfected. Sure. Well, that's normal digital <laughs> magic now. Or did you try to avoid that? At the time, it was a revelation for uh. me because I hadn't been doing any of that at all. So I guess that's why it's notable to me. Yes. I've been doing some of my stuff where I'll have a drummer remotely send me tracks in, in which case you, you have to do that. I mean, there's, I don't know, <laughs> but anybody sends you stuff when you're not right there over their shoulder, at least that's how I feel like that. So you can kind of edit them on the spot. Then you got to be able to, in the mix, line things out, straighten it out. You know, it's, it's become a crutch perhaps, <laughs> but a necessity to, to get smooth sounding recordings. Yeah, I would agree sometimes. Let's talk lyrics here. So we've got in Decent Guy, we've got this partially autobiographical, but then you're talking about kind of villain in a movie, smoke machine, castle in the sky. We're sort of throwing out some sort of fantastical images in dreams. We've got a very nice kind of mantra-esque repetitive thing. Yeah, do you want to sort of address either or both of those in terms of what the seemingly downer message against very pretty music is, is doing here? The first song I ever loved was Downer Music, Upbeat Lyrics. And it's just a corny pop song that just tore me apart when I was like maybe five. And that's the song Happy Together by the Turtles. 
I love that song, Art. And especially when I was young, I just wanted to hear it over and over again. And it made me feel so emotional. You know how some songs just almost make you want to cry. To me, the sound of the music was very sad. I thought that that was sad melody, sad chords. But then the words were really happy about being happy together. To me, that difference was really powerful. And I, I remember being aware of it, even at the time, just that difference. And, and so kind of, I've always been into that on the song Dreams. It's a funny thing. Um, I'm not going to answer directly about sadness or not. I'm not sure which one is sad. <laughs> But I remember someone asked me about that song back when the record came out. John Munson had advice for me, and he said, Matt, don't tell anyone what it's about, because that just ruins it for people. It reduces the possible ways that they could interpret it, and it's very possible that their personal interpretation is the most powerful way that they could ever hear the song. And you'll just bring it down to something that's concrete and less powerful. I think that that's really valid. And the funny thing is, I also think that there's value in just, I'm dying to tell people, you know, what the songs are about. And so you have to balance like what's going to make it great for them. But hey, I count too. And that reminds me of there's some musicians that kind of hang around too long. Maybe I'm doing that. But you know, some people just kind of stay in the game too long. And everyone's like, why didn't that guy just quit when he was awesome, you know, rather than hanging around? It's like, well, that would be great for you, but it might not be great for that musician and that musician's life. That matters too. As much as this lost with the passion of youth, you gain artistry as you go. So <laughs> it's never bad as far as I'm concerned. I need to believe that for sure. So anyway, that song, the thing I was thinking about when I wrote it is just, it ruins it for everybody, but it's just true. I was so upset about the Bush administration. And I was really angry about their entering into war. And their reasons for war were so fantastic, fatuous. They were um, fantastical, false, delusional. And so that's what was I was thinking about, you know, as I wrote, I must learn to not pretend. To pretend that somehow war was going to lead to a more peaceful and ideal world we know that's wrong. And so that was what was going on in my heart at that time was just this really strong feeling that this is a disaster. That's what caused the song. But then what everyone might hear out of it is a totally different thing. And I don't even hear that what the impetus of the song, I don't even hear that when I listen to it now. I just kind of hear it as more just a thought about the singer saying, I have to learn not to pretend it's killing me. Well, I also, there's a syntactic ambiguity that the first time I heard it, I must learn not to pretend that these dreams are killing me is the, is the way I originally heard it. It's a self-dramatization thing because as a songwriter, if you don't dramatize your life a little bit, then you don't have enough to write about, you know, you gotta, but that kind of, especially as a young artsy feeling person that can be a little much that you should just kind of cool out. But with repeated listenings, I get the uh, the more straightforward syntactic reading. And I like the fact that it's... Yeah, well, see, that was another thing. I shouldn't have told you because it was better, <laughs> you know, how you thought of it, I'm sure. And I love the, the progression here. It's just like the message, I will study what is real. Saying it that way, let's reduce everything to as simple as possible. And I will look at, I will study up on faith. 
I will find truth as if this kind of way that nobody actually thinks about that way of oversimplifying it. Unless you're in a desperate moment, unless you're at the, at the end of your wit, you know. Right. And the whole music itself is a balm. So like, you know, whatever torment you've got here, we're going to pour this on it. Another thing with both songs we didn't really talk about is the bridge. So, you know, with this song, it really launches you. You add extra. There's little bongo rolls. You have these little Mellotron string parts that are coming. Your voice goes to a totally different range. The balm that I was just talking about of simplify everything and keep it calm. Like we have a little bit of ripping open. It's not completely raw, but it's definitely triumphant in some way. It is. It makes you feel like you can escape from this kind of paradox. Because I uh, kind of grew up with the Beatles, they marked first years of my life, and they marked all music for, you know, the next 15 years for sure. No one could escape them and their influence, at least among my friends. Back in those days, every song had a bridge. It was just kind of an understood thing. If Paul wrote the song, then John would come in with, you know, life is very short you know, and, and do his thing, you know. And, and so they had these big bridges, which allowed, you know, the other personality to come in and take the song higher and in a slightly different direction, which made it all the more powerful when you kind of came back to the original idea. So I'm trying to like write some songs that don't have bridges. I've accomplished it lately, but I am kind of still very infatuated with a big bridge a bridge that feels like it's uh, like it belongs but which is a, a true departure from the verse and chorus and your use of the synth strings in this again this kind of sounds like what the harmonica was before that as opposed to the piano part which is you know an honest to goodness two-handed <laughs> integral part of the song that these little that you've just more got these you could have done them as ooh ah vocals or something but like let's just play it with one finger and maybe double it or I mean do those come really late in the process of just thickening things up definitely it was the last thing and I think that someone had given us samples for a Mellotron mm. you know a Mellotron is this instrument that nobody has and back then especially like nobody really had access to a Mellotron sound and we didn't and then someone gave us these samples and so we figured out a way to play them back and Basically, we wanted to put Mellotron on everything, you know, because it was something that just had been kind of out of our reach for a lot of years. And we were dying to get that sound because it's so cool. Well, speaking of Beatlesque flourishes. So, I mean, this the way that you structure the chorus here with John doing the initial these dreams are killing me and his voice is very phased. And then you're soaring over that. And even when you're singing together, you're stopping before he does or vice versa. I forget which way it goes, but it's not, you know, locked in. Yeah, yeah, it's it's two different guys doing their thing. How collaborative is that as opposed to, is it just put him in front of the mic and see what he does? <laughs> or is it a lot of suggestions back and forth? Or We had an opportunity to play this song quite a bit before we recorded it. And so we had kind of developed how we went back and forth on that. So that was kind of fully developed by the time we sang it in the studio. The studio being like this warehouse where uh, we rehearsed. 
Well, let's get the third song out. So another sort of in the same bright genre, also acoustic guitar based, but a different project, different era from the Burnt White and Blue album, 1998, Sun is Coming. Do you want to say a little about this before we play it? This was after Trip Shakespeare, and I was really interested in maybe figuring out a way to just play all alone. I wanted to just kind of do everything and be alone. I got those kind of finger picks that you actually place on your fingers. You know, they're a little band plus a thing. And I kind of learned a technique to how to do that. I kind of made it up. And so that song has um, me doing kind of an untutored version of finger picking. Somehow, you know, I had a lot of time at this point because I was still kind of cruising after being in Trip Shakespeare and I hadn't been forced into being kind of a nine to five guy quite yet by that point. And so it's got a really involved, super complicated guitar pattern that took a lot of time to figure out. I'm not even sure if I could play it right now anymore. So that song is, it's really guitar forward because really my hope had been that I could just play it without any instruments. It would just fully function that way. Maybe it needed a few instruments, though. Last attempt for the firmament, for the children's tent, consolation lost in my hate. While I wait for the up to taste invitation, imitation, the try. Like a dance, like a nervous breakdown, invitation lost in a sense, in a trance, telephone now, California.
So yes, I understand when you're by yourself, it's got to be, I mean, making it a little funky part. That's a great sort of way that Dave Matthews trick of making it not just open mic night guy strumming guitar, but also having a convoluted part like this. That's not even like, I'm just trying to think like, what's the harmonic structure of this or whatever. It's not just you're playing a minor chord there. You're, you're throwing in some little blue notes to just give it a little movement right from the start. Definitely. And there's a lot of literally harmonics in there too and it's kind of all over the place but it works and then the obvious the place that you could not do by yourself so it seems like if you're going into this i don't want to say nirvana-esque but it's a quiet part and then a loud part you know that you have this wall of sound for the pre-chorus here that just comes and bashes you with this just really thick stack of vocals and the electric guitar pounding this is all just all you layering stuff it started out with making the drum part that whole record, Burnt, White, and Blue, um, <laughs> started out with a like a big victory and a kind of a tragedy at the same time. I had a little uh, studio that was downtown. It was in the basement of some building, and I got notified that I was going to have to leave in about 24 hours. And so I just decided I'm going to just record all the drum parts for this record, Burnt, White, and Blue, in this time that I've got left because I don't know when else I'm going to be, be able to record drums. And so I had quit smoking pot because I just had to stop smoking pot. I decided that maybe if I just smoked cigarettes while I was recording the drums, that would kind of help me stay awake and do this 24-hour overnight thing. And so I got a pack of cigarettes, my first pack since you know I did a little experimenting in college. And that led to this kind of five-year, you know, full-on addiction <laughs> nightmare that, you know, eventually I used enough patches and got out of it. But it was kind of a big mistake. But on the other hand, I got all those drums in the 24 hours and built onto those cigarette smoking my whole way through the whole record um, and uh, finished the record. I would not have expected that given how interesting some of the drums are on this song. Actually, I just want to pull out the second verse have a state more like a dance like a nervous breakdown invitation lost in a sense but it's this that's overdubby stuff on top of like the initial stuff sampler fun i see all right don't want to ruin anyone's fantasy but <laughs> no that did not sound like the foundational part that sounded like sugar on the top so that makes sense yeah. Um, but you got these huge fills as well. But there's like a, there's like a sound in there. and That's from some synth. It's all just kind of a sample I made. Having that kind of non-drum kit percussion sounds, but then actually making that meld okay with actually having the real kit in there, which it seems like that would be, it's a little sonically tricky here and there. I mean, it's like if you want to put a synth clap over your... <laughs> your regular drum set or whatever, like the synth over the synth drum, you know, 
but actually engineering all that stuff so it sounds natural enough or as unnatural as it's supposed to sound, I should say. <laughs> At that point, there was no one asking for my record or, you know, like, I was just kind of on my own floating and I wasn't really in demand at that point. And so I took my time and really finding the sound for that. If that took a week, that was kind of okay at that point. I I spent a lot of time on that record. We had uh, some, I don't want to say rap, but in the first song here, we've got these definite cold pause, last attempt, pause for the first, like these kind of purposefully odd phrasings. Do you have any thoughts about where that kind of comes from? Or was that something that evolves as it goes? That was kind of how I felt like the words needed to be. It was not really intended to be angular or disjointed. It was just kind of how I felt like the words needed to sound. That song, to me, there's kind of two different kinds of lyrics out there. And there's plain lyrics in the sense that they're not coded uh-huh. You can really understand it. It's, it's plain plain to hear what someone is trying to get across. And then there's more coded lyrics, which are maybe hiding a little bit. Like you might be very inspired and, and have a true meaning to the song, but you're cloaking it a little bit from embarrassment or uncertainty or whatever as a songwriter. And so these are kind of from that school of more coded lyrics. It mixes it up because you've got the chorus, which I almost kind of initially dismissed this song lyrically just because what sun is coming to the cold places, now you can feel, and that's repeated a lot. Like, that's kind of too understandable. But then, like, you have the verses to counter that. Like, what is being said here? Cold, last attempt. The mystery, like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> so I like that. You're trying me on machine-like. You can impose a meaning on that, but no one would ever know what it's really about, you know. Can you say sort of what made you bring these two things together, that you've got this very understandable chorus that is combined with this slightly, I'm objecting to your trying to make me into a machine and delivering it in a purposefully obtuse way as as if to convey that. Right. Maybe all you end up kind of getting out of it is just this anger and that gets released into the beautiful melody of the chorus and the beautiful meaning of the chorus. Sun is coming to the cold places. Now I can feel. That is simple and maybe it's a little saccharine, but it's one of those things where sometimes if you repeat something enough, it gains other meanings and it gains power just from repetition. So the bridge in this freed replace me to relieve us to erase me. So it's kind of a nihilistic freedom of some sort. It's not about Trip Shakespeare, but it's about kind of a band breakup. I had been in a band for a little while in there, and I ended up getting fired from the band, and I was so hurt. You know, I was smoking a lot of pot at that point, and I think I was probably pretty annoying to be around. I was just really um, full of anger about that and uh, felt ill-used, which I doubt I was looking back. I have no idea, really. So that's kind of the source of all of this anger and kind of cloaked thought in there and maybe this feeling of that I was finding my way forward from that into a new, you know, that the sun was coming up for me as a songwriter rather than being in someone else's band. I guess before we introduce the last song and get out of here, do you want to say a little about the stuff you've had very active periods and then no original songs coming out for a while and and then so you got When I Was a Writer is the title and you, the title song 
for the new album that seemed to be referring to when it was really easy, which I feel very much as a middle-aged person, like, wow, when I was 19, even though like I didn't necessarily make every idea into a whole song, but I could have just sat down and just come up with a million things. And now, I don't know, too many other things harassing. There's always different reasons. That song, which is the title song on our LP, it is kind of about that. And it's about being on a wave of inspiration where everything is obvious. You know who you are, you know how you want things to sound, or you feel like you're on this path to kind of finding this sound that you're after. It comes more easily at sometimes than others. And so in a way, that song is about my whole sparkly youth when I was in Trip Shakespeare and kind of living this rock dream that was brief and so amazing. And I was always really grateful for it. That's a, like the pathway of my life. It's like my life started out with a boom right there. And then, uh, you know, it's kind of gone from there towards normal, like everyone else. And I have a job and a family now, you know, but I started out with this kind of like crazy attention. And so it's kind of this song is somewhat about just that time versus how I am now when I was a writer, kind of, you know, when I was flying, when I was, everything was happening for me and uh, happening easily. And then also it's a little bit about the way you can go from being totally inspired and, and you are a writer to these gaps where it's work and you're turning the crank and trying, but maybe nothing happening for you, really. So that song covers that as well. Well, let's hear that song, When I Was a Writer. Thanks so much for doing this, Matt. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's a, It's been really fun, really fun. It's always fun when someone's asking you to talk about your stuff. Yeah. <laughs>
Thanks so much to Matt. I really, really enjoyed his songs. Exactly up my alley. Remember, his website is minneapolismatt.com. And if you look for the blog post associated with this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, I will link to some Trip Shakespeare songs and other things that he's done. Trip Shakespeare was really a great collection of talent with both Dan Wilson and John Munson being very strong singer-songwriters in addition to Matt. So this was a great discovery. I hope you come back for the next episode. Make sure to subscribe, of course, at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I know some of you just listen to these episodes on the Partially Examined Life feed, but that's lame. Look up the podcast at Apple Music, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to leave a nice rating, a nice review while you're there, that would be very helpful. And of course, I welcome your support as normal. Patreon.com slash Nakedly Examined Music. I've got some great upcoming episodes. The next one was with Chris Maxwell, who has done a lot of soundtrack work and is a wonderful eclectic singer-songwriter. And the latest news, I just recorded one with Jack Hughes, the singer from Wang Chung, who is actually a jazz guy with classical training, very sharp. So please come back. I hope you're staying safe, maybe being artistic. Keep on musicin'. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Later. Master.